So this is Robin Harford from Plants and People podcast and eatweeds.co.uk. I'm here with Nathaniel Hughes, who is or runs a school of intuitive herbalism. So, Nathaniel, can you introduce us a little bit about yourself and what is intuitive herbalism? <laughs> what is intuitive herbalism? Uh, I think I think uh, that is going to be different for each person because what I'm interested in is the relationships people build with plants and what emerges from that relationship. And uh, how deeply they can allow themselves to go into that relationship, to allow the plant in, to change them. So I remember somebody did one of the year courses and at the end she said, when she started, she thought she was going to learn about plants. And at the end, she realized it was about being changed by plants, by really allowing them in and, and allowing them to change us, to teach us, to guide us, to give us vision. So for me, it's, it's a very personal process. It's a process of building relationships and, and allowing change to happen, but becoming transparent to the plant, becoming receptive to the plant. Uh, probably most importantly, becoming vulnerable to the plant. So the opposite of approaching a plant with the idea of an objective study. This is, for me, it's very highly subjective. It's about really being with yourself, with your own process, with what's happening in this moment between you and the plant. So in a nutshell, that's, that's what I do. Uh, we've called it intuitive herbalism. I actually started off 10 years ago, all the classes were called experiential herbalism. And somehow I felt the word experiential didn't really cover what I'd call the soul aspect of it enough. Uh, so gradually turned into this, this idea of working with intuition, working with deep connection, working with uh, a deeper sense of knowing that's not particularly linear, it's not particularly intellectual, it comes from it comes from relationship. It comes from it comes from the deep connections we form with the plants, with ourselves, with other people. So and, for me, and how and how does that relationship get developed? How how would someone who's listening to this start developing relationship with a plant? Are they going to be developing relationship with loads of plants all at the same time, or do they just start? Well, with uh, I, everyone's different. My experience is. Uh, the commitment to really work with one at a time does help. Uh, I tend to suggest to the people I work with that really meeting three plants a year at quite a deep level is, is pretty good going. So to use an analogy of human relationships, it's a difference between an acquaintance, a friend, a lover, and, and somebody beyond a lover, you really let them in and they change you. you your whole worldview shifts because of your time you spent with them. That's what I'm looking for. Now, you're not going to be doing that 10 times a year because that would just be exhausting, frankly. And uh, uh, there's, there's a rate of change I think we can undergo in ourselves that has its own pace. You can't, you can't force it. You can't rush it. So making a commitment to really get to know a plant, to really uh, develop that relationship, to work with your resistance, to work with what it touches in you, to dream with it, 
to take it, to grow it, to draw it, to watch it grow, all these things. It's, in many ways, it's very different to a human relationship. Uh, it grows through commitment. It grows through being vulnerable and allowing yourself to be changed by it. Uh, it grows through a good bit of critical reflection on what's actually happening. All these things. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a slow process. You know, uh, it's, not, it's not a quick route, definitely. But the depth people can go to, the understanding they can go to with a plant, means that they understand the plant in a way that when they want to share it with other people, they have a very clear sense if that plant is going to resonate, be right for somebody else. Which, if your knowledge of a plant is more intellectual, knowledge-based, for instance, symptom-based, it's my experience is it's a lot more hit and miss. You could say, this plant is listed for asthma, this person has asthma, I give them this plant. That's a very, very hit and miss approach to herbalism. That's like almost a drug. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, but, but it's what happens in health food shops all the time, all the day. You know, it's this sort of pharmacological approach to herbalism is very widespread, particularly in the commercial sector of herbalism uh, and in some practices of herbalism as well. And it has a place, definitely. Uh, okay, so, so, so you have a nasty cut using myrrh tincture is absolutely brilliant. You know, there's a clear problem, there's a clear solution. Uh, but actually what I find is, you know, people, people often come to herbalists with quite chronic long-term health conditions. Now those imbalances, if you like, have been building up for years and years, if not decades. They don't tend to respond to quick fixes they don't tend to respond well to a symptomatic approach. My experience is that person needs to be met at a deeper level. They need to go to a place in themselves where their body has lost its ability to self-heal, find why it's lost that ability, and then ask the plants in to help them. That's, that's what I'm looking for in how I work, how I practice. Uh, so in many ways, it's uh, it's soul work. It's it's uh, I, I guess I guess I have this core belief that our bodies, like nature, are incredible in their self healing potential. So that when somebody is ill, the question is less about how do we fix the illness and more about what needs to happen for the body to remember how to heal itself. Now, to go into that territory often goes into quite dark areas of the self. Forgotten aspects of self, parts we're dissociated from, parts of our body we're dissociated from. I mean, you know, how many, how many times have I seen women with uterine problems where there's a history of sexual abuse? It's, it's massive. Uh, so for me, a big part of the healing is about reassociating with these aspects of self, reassociating with our body, and then asking the herbs for guidance how to do that. And they're absolutely brilliant at that. I, I've often said I, I'd never work in healing without the herbs, because I think to do that as a human just would be exhausting. To try and hold that space of healing, to try and help guide people through their own inner world, their own darkness, to support them through that, to hold their hand through 
confusion, doubt, fear, terror. Terror is often there. It's really hard. But when it's me, the other person, and a plant, that makes a massive difference because the plant holds a certain integrity, a wholeness, uh, and knowing what it is to be physically and spiritually whole and healthy. And every time the person connects to that plant, takes that plant, and I don't really make a distinction here between taking something as a medicine and sitting with it, watching it grow. What's important to me is they're allowing that plant in in some way. And as they allow it in, it's reminding their body of the wholeness that is possible. It's reminding the body of what it's forgotten. And it's, it's also guiding them into reconnection. So, so yeah, that's, that's, that's basically how I practice and how I teach is, is deep relationship with the plant, deep relationship with your own process, and the same as a, as a practitioner, that soul connection, that deep relationship with the person you're working with and what they're holding, the, the things they struggle to look at in themselves. And that by supporting them, by holding their hand, you can help them into these scary areas. So, so it sounds like that when someone shows up at your front door seeking help, that you're not really treating a physical condition. Sometimes, yeah. It's a, Sometimes. It's a composite of all. Yeah, it, 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 it depends. If somebody just turns up, you know, and they've got, they've got a, a winter flu, then I'd just give them a bag of elderberries. Yeah. It's great, you know. Uh, that simple. Yeah. The, 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 the sort of, you know, off-the-shelf type herbalism, you know, I, I enjoy doing that. That's yeah. fine. But where I've been drawn in my own practice is, is this question, why is imbalance, why is disease occurring in the first place? And just diving really, really deeply into that question. Uh, so most of my work is actually with quite long-term chronic conditions and supporting people in rediscovering their own life force, their own vitality, both of which relate to immunity. So yeah, so yeah, that, that off-the-shelf stuff is great. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a lot simpler, to be honest. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. uh, uh, if I wanted an easy life. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, there's, there's loads of wonderful quick fixes. Uh, but yeah, and, that, and that's a really valid part of herbalism. But, but yeah, it's a, it's a soul work that's called, called me. Yeah. So what's your, you know, how did this all start for you? How did, how did you, how did you, how did you wake up to plants? How did they wake you up? What was, what's your, been your, your journey oh, to God. end up being a herbalist? I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, trained in? You know, not that that's particularly relevant. <laughs> okay, well, I grew up and was, as a teenager in my early 20s, in a very academic intellectual space. I did a chemistry degree up at Edinburgh University, and then immediately after that I went on to do a four-year professional training in medical herbalism at the Scottish School of Herbalism in Glasgow. So that was, that was maybe from the ages 20 to 25 or so. Now, when I discovered uh, the prospectus for the Scottish School of Herbal Medicine, I, I was coming into Napier's Herbalist in Edinburgh, which is a really old 
herbalist that's uh, really well known in Edinburgh. And there was this prospectus for the Scottish school just sitting at the counter there. And as I picked it up, I just knew that's what I had to do. I hadn't really given any thought to studying herbalism before. I'd, you know, I'd dabbled with taking herbs. I'd actually had very strong experiences with St John's Wort, which I'd taken for three years. So in a way, that was my first initiation. But when I saw this prospectus, I just knew that's what I had to do. It wasn't, uh, you know, a lot of my friends, my family didn't understand it at all. It, it was just a pure sense of this is this is right. There was no way I could justify it, explain it. It definitely didn't lead to any sort of sensible sort of livelihood. You know, really, herbalism is not a good way to earn a livelihood. You know, you train as a masseur, acupuncturist, chiropractor. Herbalism is not a good way <laughs> on the whole. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a vocational thing. And that's what I found when I was training. Everybody was there because they had a sense of vocation, because they were called to it for some reason. Uh, but my first, my actual first plant experiences were uh, suffering with depression from probably the age of 17. Somehow just this, this innate knowing that antidepressants weren't an answer. It just seemed like a bit of a dead end, really. I couldn't see from, from you know, I was studying pharmacology and chemistry. It didn't seem that that actually offered a solution. It offered symptom management, but, but it didn't feel like it really addressed the depression. And uh, I just read a magazine article, talked about St. John's work, so oh, I'll give it a try. Now, the sort of depression I had was... Uh, I guess to a degree bipolar in that I'd have maybe a week of a really intense manic phase and probably three or four weeks in a really deep depression and then pop up again and be in this manic phase. So what I started to notice gradually after taking the St. John's work was the extremes of each started to soften and the distance between them started to reduce. So the, the manic phases were not so intense, the depressive phases were not so intense. And I had the inkling that there was actually a middle line there somewhere. A middle line just of contented beingness. <laughs> and that was a revelation to me, because I had not realised that middle line existed. It's sort of a hard thing to explain, but I, I, I had no idea of the existence of that middle line. And I think St John's work really helped teach me about that. It showed me that possibility. So I'm very grateful to that. But yeah, I, I didn't come, come to it from a deep love of nature, of herbs. Uh, although I, I, I had a love of nature. My favourite thing living in Edinburgh was going up Arthur's Seat and sitting amongst the gorse flowers at sunset. And just the way those gorse flowers seem to give off their own light. Which is amazing. Uh, but actually, it seems I, I was just drawn into this path. So the, the intuitive side, um, hmm. I mean, did you have mentors that kind of, did you, did you just fall into it kind of intuitive? I know that sounds corny. <laughs> did you intuitively get into oh. intuitive herbalism? Or was, were you introduced to it because of teachers and... Mentors? Oh, no, no, but I was definitely introduced at the Scottish school. It was... It was, it was definitely core to their ethos. Uh, there was also a lot of academic stuff that sometimes swamped the more experiential stuff, as can easily happen. 
but it was definitely in the ethos. There was uh, my first introductions were uh, tea tasting with Christopher Headley, and Gertian plant study with Maureen and uh, oh, what's her name? Calhoun. No, uh, Pish Pishwanton. M- 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 Margaret. Yeah, Margaret Coon. Margaret. Yeah, that's, oh, sorry. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so those are my early experiences. But what I noticed is we would be in a class, maybe 14 of us, and we'd do a tea tasting. One or two people would seem to have these really strong, extreme experiences and be drawing all sorts of effects of this herb on their body. Half the class sort of got very little at all. I certainly got nothing at all at that point. I was completely in this head intellectual space. But I was very curious about what they were experiencing and how they could so easily translate it into experience. So, you know, so some people could do this very innately. Mm. I couldn't. Mm. I couldn't. I had to learn it step by step, really slowly. And in a way, I think that's been a bit of a benefit because it means I can help then guide people into it step by step as well because I've had to find my way slowly. So, so it was a four-year training, and at the start, I was in this very intellectual space. And at the end of four years, I was just starting to open to what I'd now call a more heartfelt, a more experiential, a more intuitive understanding of the plant's nature. This sense that the plant was an entire being. There was a certain consciousness that this plant held. And that by coming into an understanding of this consciousness, we, we could then work with the plant in far, far more efficient, far more effective ways. I was starting to grasp that. But still at this point, this idea that we could learn what we needed from direct plant relationship, just you and the plant, it was still a bit of an ideal. But it was an ideal I believed in. And I reckon it took me another seven years to the point I could confidently say it's not an ideal, it's just how it is. And it always has been. That people throughout history have learnt from the plants directly. And it's not actually that difficult to do because we all have an innate ability to do it. The problem is we are so conditioned to ignore the subtle responses from our body that we overlook it. It's almost as if it's a very quiet voice in a very loud world. Uh, It's just a little whisper, and then something about our culture is like a hundred radios on full volume all the time. So to really listen to that little whisper is actually really hard. It's there, it's there in everyone. I absolutely know that. Uh, I mean, I don't know how many students I've worked with now, but I've never seen anyone not find it. Some people struggle more than others, but, but, but it's always there. And a lot of the skill is in quietening these other radios. Uh, so give, a, give, give, give us some examples on, on how people could start listening to that all right. quiet whisper. What, okay, well, is there a process? Is, how, how does it work? Okay, for me, the fundamental first step is about coming into stillness yourself. If you're constantly in uh, an intellectual or mental state, if you're constantly busy, if you're constantly moving around, uh, if you find it difficult to sit still and just be with yourself, that is definitely the first step. 
So cultivating a stillness practice, a meditation practice, a mindfulness practice, absolutely, that, that's crucial. Because at first, these seem to be quite subtle voices. And if you've got all this activity going on, it's very hard to hear them. Now, once that stillness starts to emerge, then it's a question of listening. And I really think the most powerful way in is through listening to your body. Starting to really get to know your, your muscles, your tendons, your stomach, your liver, your intestines, your lungs. R really come into a relationship with each of them. A conversation with each of them. Ask how each one is that day, at this moment. Now, that work itself can be, can be many years, even to just break through into some sort of authentic listening to the body. But once you've got that contact, when you then bring a plant into the meeting, your body will respond to the plant. There's something very innate about that. So an, uh, uh, an, an example would be, if you, if you imagine you were walking through a meadow, so the summer meadow, and just imagine your gait as you walk through that, how that feels. Now, at some point you get to a woodland margin and it's a really old oak wood and you step into this oak wood. Now, how does your gait change? How does your breathing change? You know, how do your emotions change? How do even the way you're thinking change? Now, I think anyone could uh, recognize that there's a shift that happens that there's a certain way of being in that open, sunny field, and there's a certain way of being that spontaneously happens as you step into the oak woodland. It's really amplifying that difference and really noticing what happens. So, so when I do talks, I often give the example of coffee, a very simple example that most people can relate to. So I, I open up the question to the, to the audience and say, if you'd never had a cup of coffee before, somebody gave you one what would you notice happening? Okay, and you know, this is sometimes people who've never really had anything to do with herbalism, and they say, okay, uh, um, my mind starts working quicker, my heart rate speeds up, it's a bit of a laxative, uh, I start to have all sorts of ideas, it's quite creative. Uh, people, are, people know these things. They know how their body's responding, it's just attuning that listening. Uh, and you can take that to greater and greater and greater degrees of subtlety the more you listen. So in your school of herbalism, I mean, we, we touched on this in, uh, before the, the recorder was switched on. Um, you said an interesting thing. It was like how, how it, it's not a curriculum-led thing. It's student-led. Mm -hmm. So when students turn up, what am I trying to say? How does does your understanding of plants affect your way of teaching students or working with students? Okay. Uh, well, well, the first thing to say is absolute core to all the work we do is the idea of relationship with a plant and I think the idea of initiation. Now, for me, that word is something that happens at some unknown moment in the relationship, that something in you shifts, something in you fundamentally changes. 
So, so, so those two concepts are absolutely at the core. So for people looking for a more knowledge-based or academic, uh, it's, it's not the sort of training they want. The people who come, and actually a lot of them often have a couple of degrees already, they're coming because they want the experiential aspect. They want that soul aspect. They want to go deeper into the relationship aspect. You know, I've, I've met so many people who've done, uh, say, herbal degrees or, or, or courses and degree trainings in Chinese herbalism who've hardly met a single one of the plants that they've yeah. studied. Yeah. That's not uncommon. Yeah. So, so the focus of all the work we do is about, is about meeting the plants. Now, in terms of student-centered, this is a really important concept for me because I think I'm quite passionate about education and, and actually the potential of what education can really be. Now, most of us have come through an education system that is quite top-down. It's curriculum-based, it's outcome-orientated. So I'm exploring the idea, what is it to completely hand back that autonomy to the student and to say, well, where do you want to go with this? What is your vision for yourself? And how do you think you're going to come to fulfill that vision? So those are the questions I'm asking. I'm not saying, I'm offering this and this and this. I'm saying, well, what do you want? Yeah. And then, and then saying, okay, so how can I help you? Now, when you do that, each, each student, each apprentice has a completely different vision for themselves. You know, so for, for, for somebody, say, so somebody who's really deeply into working with the artwork and the plants and really wants to introduce other people to that as a way into meeting the plants, you know, the deeper aspects of biochemistry are really not that relevant for them. You know, whereas somebody else really wants a fairly standard clinical practice. So it might be more relevant. So do you think, I mean, that what immediately flashes to my mind is, is you've done your degrees, you did your medical herbalism mm -hmm. training, which, like you say, was, was, was not totally top-down because it was with the Scottish school. Mm -hmm. um, but it was still a... Uh, an yeah. academic training. Oh, very much, very much. Um, yeah. And you set up an intuitive herbalism school. Do you think there is a place for students who come who have none of that academic training? I'm talking about my, myself here, <laughs> Okay. Uh -huh. um, then able, not that I'm doing a training, I have to <laughs> be transparent about, yeah. um, that I'm that say someone who comes, they have no academic training, they have a deep passion and love for plants, they work, um, or they take your, your, your course, and then they go out into the world, and they are herbalists within their communities. Um, where do you see, I suppose, they don't have that academic, they don't have the facts and the figures, I mean, they will, obviously, yeah. to a degree, but not at such a depth well, as an academic I mean, the, the, can they then go on and train? Well, um, it's just, it's like a well, 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 this is the thing. It's, it's it's very uh, it's very individual. Mm -hmm. So I know just the past few years, there's maybe three or four people who've done the foundation year I run, and really decided that they wanted to dive into the academic approach. And I tend to refer people up to Lincoln for that. And I think most of them, it's it's their first degree. And they all they felt they really wanted that that sort of academic edge, and that would be really good for them, and totally support that. So it's it's, it's really down to the individual. I mean, I, I see my role as challenging and supporting. Yeah. So I'm 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 asking each person, 
are do you where do you feel you are in your process and can you really look me in the eye and with integrity know that you are both safe and proficient where you are yeah. now so 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 the nominal time scale for this apprenticeship is seven years you know, so it's a, you know we're, we're taking it very slowly and the vast majority of people are already practitioners right. so they already have some uh, uh, a, a uh, kind of client patient uh, professionality uh, and, and that's that does really help actually when people have some foundation in clinical work I suppose what the re- where that question that I'm asking is coming from is that uh, one of my frustrations is that I know a lot of plant well not that my frustration is I know a lot of plant people my frustration is I know a lot of beautiful plant people who don't have that training we live in a culture that puts so much emphasis on the certificate on well how much how many years clinical training as in a university or a practice have you done so for me as someone who's, who's never really been that into the academia side mm-hmm. um, we have all these plant people in our communities and yet the cultural spec is to well unless you've got a certificate you can't possibly know what you're on about yeah I think so I, I, the old I, I, yeah. school folk the wise mm-hmm. women and the wise yeah. men who knew plants you know yeah. they, they were humble modest people they didn't Leslie Absolutely. Well, this, this is this is why it's so yeah, it's so, so individual. Yeah, but, you know that that academic clinical route will really suit some people, and that's brilliant. Sure, but of it also isolates quite a lot of other people, and often I find it's those people with a deep sensitivity and, uh, and natural plantmanship, if you like, or plant womanship. Uh, who find themselves very intimidated and put off by an overly academic process. Now, I, I don't equate academia with rigor. Now, I think that, that's, that's, that can be a mistake. So I believe it's entirely possible to be rigorous in your studies, in your integrity, in your self-evaluation, but that doesn't have to be in an academic form. Uh, and I think that's really important. For, for, for me, the most important question is, is, is about integrity. Is, uh, are you able to realistically assess your skills and your limits? Do you really know, are you, are you, are you up on all your safety knowledge? But most importantly, are you going to stand by anybody you work with and follow through? Yeah. That's, that's the absolute number one question for me, is... Uh, are you uh, uh, are, are your are your interpersonal ethics sound? Yeah. Are, are you going to follow through? And f- from that perspective, you can start work at any level. You, you could start work by just handing out elderberry for people with colds, sure. as I say. Yeah, yeah, it's a good place to start. Yeah, you know, you could you could uh, yeah, there, there's and then and then build up slowly. And this is what I encourage: is you 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 work within your skill set. Now. My challenge then is to is to really look at these what what people are trying to do what they want to do and challenge them on the edges of that skill set to say well actually are are you really able to do that are you really safe doing that and what do you need to do to expand that skill set? That's really good. I mean, it's nice to hear to hear that because for me the the you know being slightly anarchic the 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 whole drowning in regulation and, and certification is frustrating but equally um 
like yesterday, I had a friend over, and and his, his the the partner of his his children has had a major breakdown over taking this frog medicine, which we talked about. Um, and yet the person, the practitioner who administered it, has totally left her and walked away. Mm. So. Someone hearing this who's maybe a little bit more traditional may, may balk at the idea of like, well, you can't just start going out and teaching, treating people with, with plants. But it, like you say, it comes down yeah. to one, um, the personal integrity mm-hmm. and personal ethics of the practitioner. Um, two, and also when this work is, is being taught, this, something I'm very much into is... is not believing my own bullshit and therefore being ruthlessly honest with myself as to my capabilities mm-hmm. because I'm not into regulation I mean I'm really mm-hmm. opposed to regulation I understand why it's there I've mm-hmm. talked to the people that got the herbal regulation in and I understand their their viewpoint and to a, de- mm-hmm. a bit I do do agree with it but on yeah. the base level, it, it, it does come yeah. down to practitioners. I, I think I think I'm not opposed to it particularly, uh, but I think it's not the only way. No, I think I think there are there are many ways to be a herbalist. Yeah, and I I don't see the herbal profession in Britain thriving. It's not. If anything, uh, it's dying. Exactly. Now, so I'm 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 concerned about that. You're right. Uh, and. Empowering people to really work with herbs safely at whatever level they're able to, I think, is a wonderful way to get it back into the community. Yeah. Uh, rather than excessive professionalization. Now, now, some people that will really work for them being a medical, clinical herbalist. Sure. Some people just want to be more like a home herbalist, family herbalist, uh, working with a small network of their friends, family community yeah. uh, you would need different things for those different outcomes so and and at the moment uh there isn't really a, a wide offering in that way yeah and, and i think that's a really positive thing for herbalism you know as, as long as there's some basics in there which is professionality ethics safety uh as long as those basics are there i think you can start working at any level and build up slowly yeah that's i mean that's really nice to hear um and I wholeheartedly support that. I think it's really, really important. And I think specifically it's important as the culture moves into a slightly precarious situation where healthcare, traditional, NHS, whatever, is, is slightly fragmenting and mm-hmm. breaking down, that, that people aren't afraid if they have a, have a deep knowledge of plants and are clear on their themselves, they're brutally honest with themselves, that it's not a problem to... And someone else berries. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a starting point. And if, a starting point. I, if you think as a reference place, you know, the, the, there are people employed in health food shops who've done maybe a half day's training. You know, they're 19 years old and people are coming in in very vulnerable states and asking them advice at the counter. That's that's the reality of what's happening. Yeah. Uh, so so actually y- y- you, you can you can start to build your skill base and knowledge base quite quickly uh, and then just 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 grow with it each year. I I I, I mean I, I honestly think working as a clinical herbalist, supporting people in in deep process work, uh, unless you already have skills in that, you experience, practice, 
or, or you're just innate, innately gifted at that. I, I, I reckon that's about a seven year process. Yeah. So, so, so that's why I've had this nominal seven years. Now, some of the apprentices might think, oh, I need to take 15 years over this. Yeah. Some of them might be ready in four. I, I don't know at this point, yeah. but, but I would just keep on checking in where they're at and challenging them uh, at their limits. So you've written a, a number of books. Well, you've written two, two books. Two. Two books. Incredibly beautiful books. Real almost sigils in print. Oh, what? Sigils. A sigil is, a, is, a, is an intention. So, so Crowley, Alistair Crowley, not that I have any training in <laughs> magic <laughs> with a K, um, saw books as almost um, a spell. Oh, yes, yeah. In the way that they were designed, in the beauty of them, in the typography, in mm. the papers, in the binding, and that if you write a book um, with that intention, it almost puts, creates a spell in the world for, for your intention to come about. So your books um, have beautiful illustrations. The first one is called Intuitive Herbalism. And your current one, which is... Uh, weeds in the Heart. Weeds in the Heart. So, But that's a lovely... I've not, not heard that word before. But, yeah. But, but I mean, I, I work very closely with Fiona, who's the artist, who, who does... Uh, she calls them illuminations rather than illustrations. Uh, and and that, that has been our intention from the start. It's not... Uh, the books are not about information. They're about creating doorways for you to step into this world of plant consciousness. That's what we, we're hoping to achieve, is that you might read a chapter about nettle and you come away from that really fascinated to go and explore that for yourself. You know, what is all this about? This all sounds, yeah, intriguing. But that's what we want to generate, this, this enthusiasm, this interest, this fascination for making your own relationships with plants, which is quite, I think it's quite a different approach to writing a herbal. Yes. You know, the, the classic approach is, is, is how, uh, what they treat, conditions, uh, effects. We, we touch on that, but that's not the focus. The focus is to create these portals f to encourage you to go deeper into the meeting with each plant. Yeah, well, I think that works. No, oh, thank you. Very, very definitely. For me, that was one of my first things, because I used to work in a, in, in, in a bookshop, and I remember reading that aspect of what Crowley said. So your first book, Intuitive Herbalism, uh -huh. tell people about that. What... Okay, so uh, that evolved out of the desire to create a very concise, no waffle, no unnecessary words way of working with intuition and the plants. Uh, it's, you could, if you wanted, read it in a couple of hours, but it's quite dense, it's quite dense in ideas, and I think there's no, there, there's, there's no unnecessary waffle. It's quite tight. Uh, it outlines a process that I've worked with now for 12, 13 years, and I, I know works. Uh, it's, it, in effect, it, it's, it's what I teach on a 3D introduction class. Uh, so, so yeah, it's a little handbook to maybe come back to, to maybe check in with when you're doing your own work. 
Uh, that's a, that's the first book, smaller book, and then the the bigger one more recently is these thirteen plant portals, if you that's like. Weeds from the heart. Yep, yep. So, so they're quite different. One is about developing an intuitive approach to working with plants, and the other one is about the plants themselves. So, so we're kind of coming to the end, mm-hmm. and what would you have to say to anyone listening to this who wants to explore this this particular path of plant walking um oh well okay so so very simply undoubtedly there is a plant you've been fascinated by uh i'm yet to meet somebody who hasn't at some point been fascinated by some plant so just to go back to that plant and just sit with it just start to open to the possibility that this plant exists at at so many levels of being physical, spiritual, it exists as a living conscious being that you can come into relationship with. Now, simply approaching a plant with that respect makes a difference. And the idea that you don't know it very deeply yet, but if you want to, if you ask it, if you deepen that relationship, you can come to know it deeper. And then once you made that commitment, there's a whole range of ways of then working with that, going to visit it every day, this idea of a sit spot where you, you visit that plant in all weathers the same time each day, by drawing it, by, if you can, uh, taking it as, as a medicine, uh, by, yeah, there's, 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 there's many approaches, basically. Uh, but the main, the, main, the main thing is making a commitment to that relationship. Actually, one of the one of the ones people enjoy most and find most potent is dreaming with it. Yeah, so, they, when you say dreaming, what, what are we talking about? Well, initially, it can be say, say you spend a bit of time with this before going to bed. Okay, say so, so, say there's an oak tree near you that you, you've always felt drawn to. You know, before the last thing you do before you go to bed, just sit with it a while, and then ask for that to be with you in your dreams that night. As simple as that, and then start keeping a dream journal. And what will happen is the consciousness of that being will start to weave itself and colour your dreams in a certain way. It's almost as if it adds a certain shade to the dreams. And the more you start to watch your dreams, the more you'll start to pick up what that shade is. And it's almost as if the, that consciousness of the plant comes through all your own unconscious material. Now, obviously, most of it is our own projection, our own unconscious material. That's, that goes without saying. But when you invite the plant in, it will be there. It will be there, subtle at first, but the more time you give it, the more respect you give it, that, that, that tint, that, that distinct sound, that feeling of the plant being there will grow. And that's, that's, that's one of the approaches people seem to enjoy most. Lovely. And for, and for people like me who don't recall dreams, and I haven't, I haven't done for, apart from very specific moments, I find in that, you know, because I meet people who don't recall dreams, and they're, mm. they're going to go, well, I can't really relate to that process. So yeah. for me, the way that I've found in my own way is that that data comes. I mean, I suppose it is still dreaming, but it's in the lucid mm. dreaming point mm. where I'm just coming out of sleep yeah. into fully awake. That's really powerful. Okay, well, absolutely. Well, I personally have found that the sort of siesta-type yes. sleep yes. is some of the most powerful time for lucid dreaming. And I can now fairly easily go into a state where my body is immensely heavy 
and I'm on just on the edge of sleep. And that's a very powerful point for exploring how this plant is meeting and interacting with your own consciousness. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, it's been a real pleasure because we've been, I've been wanting to, to hang out with you and I've been wanting to certainly get you on interview for quite a few years now. And, you know, our paths have crossed hither mm. tither around different points of this aisles. Um, for people who want to follow up with either finding out about your courses or get, getting a copy of your books, mm-hmm. um, yeah, how do, they, uh, how do they reach you? Well, well the, first, the first place is, is definitely to the, the, our, our book, Intuitive Herbalism, the first one we released a couple of years ago. Uh, we ask anyone coming on courses, read that anyway, and do a bit of work with it first so they can bring questions when they come. Uh, and that's through our website, weedsintheheart.org.uk. So, uh, yeah, this, this phrase, weeds in the heart, uh, that, that came to us quite early. And it's interesting, when, I, when I've said it to people, it provokes all sorts of reactions. Okay. But it's, it's very much coming from the impulse of the, the things we neglect in ourselves, the things we discard in nature, the things we call weeds, are often the most potent medicines, both in ourselves and growing around us. There's a direct analogy there that this, this sort of wasteland, uh, apparent wasteland, is actually full of beauty and full of magic and full of gifts. And it's willingly stepping into that. So. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you. Yeah, really good.